Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Because we take a little bit more of a data-driven approach, and we don't really know to an extent a lot about, let's say, about the gender of our customers or their ethnicity or anything as they apply to our platform. All we see is, yeah, to a great extent, the numbers of the performance of the company. We find that we are able to provide capital to a much larger percentage of diverse entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, in the latest figures that we checked, I think 47% of our CEOs that we provided capital were either women or minorities. That was Carlos Antiquera, the co-founder and CEO of Novell Capital, and he is our special guest on this episode, episode 216 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. This is our fourth episode of Diversity and Inclusion Month, and we're taking diversity and inclusion to a place we haven't been before, the VC or venture capital space, and Carlos is here to speak with us about it. Novell Capital leverages technology and data to provide non-diluted capital to tech entrepreneurs that don't fit traditional bank requirements or are not an ideal match for the traditional equity process. When it comes to the venture capital space, Carlos will be the first to tell you that unconscious bias has the potential to run rampant within traditional VCs when it comes to funding companies. He explains that many will try to find a pattern around what has been successful in the past and stick to that same recipe for future investments. Ingredients include things like the college the potential founder attended, their degree, and even the type of business they're looking to start. And this can obviously be a challenge for minorities who may not have grown up in the life of privilege and expectation. And we also talk about the need for DE&I to start at the educational level and his outlook for diverse founders looking to secure funding during this economic climate. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Carlos. Welcome to this special series of the Leaders in Payments podcast about diversity and inclusion. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Greg. Great to be here and uh, excited to have a conversation about this topic. Great. So let's start out by having you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Yes. So I'm originally from South America, born and grew up in La Paz in the Andes Mountains, you know, came to the U.S. for college. And uh, my background was originally around the computer science and math. And uh, I had the opportunity to start a tech company in the Midwest here in Kansas City in the early 2000s in the talent management space, specifically focused on K-12 education. And so I had the opportunity to build and grow a company to uh, about 3,500 customers around the country. So be an important part of the uh, education fabric and then contribute in that way. And, uh, you know, learned many lessons along that journey. And a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to start a, a second company called uh, Novel Capital and uh, really informed around uh, my experience on building my first company and the challenges that entrepreneurs, many tech entrepreneurs have around getting growth capital. So at Novel Capital, we're able to leverage technology and data to uh, provide non-dilutive capital to a lot of uh, tech entrepreneurs that for one reason or another don't fit the traditional bank requirements or maybe that uh, 
are not a good match to to traditional VC equity process. Okay. All right. Well, let's keep talking about the company a little bit. How big is the company? We're definitely on startup mode. Like I said, started a couple of years ago, so we're twenty plus people right now, serving a, a you know a few hundred customers, and uh, especially over these last forty eight hours, it has been interesting to be a little bit in the in the middle of this challenging situation for a lot of tech entrepreneurs regarding capital with the things that have happened at SVB. And so it's going to be interesting where things go over the next few weeks, but uh, that has been a great opportunity for us to get our name out there to help a lot of entrepreneurs and uh, uh, really accelerate our growth. Yeah, maybe tell our audience sort of what is the process like? Does an entrepreneur or a business owner typically come to you? Do you find them? Are there like verticals that you focus on or sort of how does that process work? Yeah, so the majority of our customers are tech founders. So obviously uh, a lot of software entrepreneurs, but other uh, tech entrepreneurs that might have tech-enabled services companies or that really in general leverage tech and have some kind of recurring contracts or uh, the way we like to talk about it is a reoccurring revenue as well. And so entrepreneurs can come directly to our platform. Of course, we, you know, we have a lot of partnerships and there are other ways in which we're involved in the startup community. But basically, if an entrepreneur is interested in, in some growth capital, they will come to our platform, connect their data from some key systems such as their bank accounts, their financial systems, and then our algorithms alongside with our underwriting team can quickly figure out how we can help those entrepreneurs or if for some reason they're not a good fit to the products that we can offer. And usually within 10 days after the application, we can provide that capital for the folks that it's a good match. Okay. So you talked a little bit about your early career and having started a, a company in the K through 12 space. So what got you from K through 12 to funding fintech or, or software companies or what's the connection? Yeah. So it's really, like I mentioned, my personal experience and, and journey, as you may imagine, in the early 2000s, there were not a lot of growth capital opportunities for entrepreneurs in the Midwest. There were uh, maybe one or two VC firms, a few angels. And so it was difficult to get that growth capital. Initially, started growing the company organically. And uh, when we had uh, about 100 customers, I think about a million dollars in revenue, I thought, hey, there's a great opportunity to accelerate our growth and grabbing market share. And, uh, you know, initially... I went to our local banks and as I learned in my MBA, I had a nice uh, business plan written and, and some of the data that we had from our financials. And uh, they said, hey, you don't have assets, you don't have collateral, you, know, you don't have a lot of financial history. Therefore, you know, we cannot really give you any capital. And then some mentors shared, hey, you are a software company, you should be able to get venture capital. And so after doing the rounds around the uh, some VCs and, and angel groups in the area, you know, found out pretty quickly at that point in time in particular, K-12 was not a very sexy vertical. Folks were looking for e-commerce companies or other things, and they had uh, negative connotations to education that it's a slow process. You know, government uh, is slow to pay. There's uh, RFPs involved, so it's difficult to grow fast. And so ended up after eight months doing the rounds really with not much to show for it. And so that, that was my first experience around trying to raise capital and uh, definitely left uh, an impression on me. Uh, 
the good outcome of that initial attempt was that uh, in order to continue to grow organically, we had to get really good at, at sales, at figuring out what the customer really valued and making sure that our customers and our product were a great match. And uh, through that process, we were able to grow and be successful. It just became a, a long and arduous journey, right? Eventually, I was able to raise some capital many years later from a private equity fund that found us through a unique thesis at that point, which was, hey, let's invest in technology entrepreneurs in the middle of the country. And they were based out of on the West Coast. So they were trying to differentiate from other investors. And through that process, we were able to really accelerate our growth. I think we grew in two, two and a half years, maybe as much as we had grown the previous six, seven years. And so I really was able to see the power of, of capital. Obviously, if you understand your customer, you have a good product and you understand your unit economics, you can really leverage the capital to accelerate that growth. And so that really gave me kind of that personal experience. So after I sold my previous company called Netchemia, I reconnected with a lot of uh, my fellow entrepreneur friends from the area and I kept hearing the same challenges I experienced uh, years ago when I thought that problem had been solved. So that really there was a lot of uh, work still to be done and, and a lot of entrepreneurs still needed a solution. So that's why we started Noble Capital. Okay. So are most of your companies there in the Midwest? No, we started with uh, with that thesis thinking, hey, the Midwest needs additional options and additional capital. The coasts have uh, you know a lot of options and a lot of money. And uh, pretty quickly after we started, we, we started getting calls from California, from New York, from Canada. And we realized that it wasn't really just a, a regional challenge, but a lot of those entrepreneurs, particularly in the tech space that are at the early stage, when they don't have a lot of history, they're not profitable yet, they don't have those hardcore assets really had big challenges in getting capital and, and we're in a sort of no man's land. And so that's when we saw the opportunity that really, you know, we could grow rapidly to satisfy a, a large market. And uh, yeah, and now we work with customers really across the, the country and, and even a few customers in, in Canada at this point. Okay. Okay, great. Well, let's change gears a little bit and talk about diversity and inclusion and I know it's a very broad topic. We could spend hours discussing it. But can you talk at a high level about sort of the unconscious bias that traditional VCs sometimes have when funding companies? Yeah, definitely. So uh, the way the traditional VC process works in many cases, and there's a lot of folks trying to make a difference and trying to take a different approach. But in general, it's very dependent on relationships of you as an entrepreneur having the network or the connections of somebody to get you in the door, if you will, at an institutional VC. And uh, if you are a, a founder, like in my case, right, that is a, an immigrant and I don't have a big network, it becomes really difficult to get in the door, if you will. And uh, even if you get past that stage and, and you are able to get in front of a VC, especially at the very early stages when there's not a lot of other data around you and around your product or product market fit because you are just getting started. Maybe you have a prototype or something like that. Then understandably, so many VCs will try to find a pattern of what has been successful or what they think might be successful. And so the natural things that you, you might look for, right, is did you graduate from Stanford, right? Do you have a, a highly technical degree and a network that might be helpful or 
or because you graduated from engineering from Stanford, you know, demonstrate some kind of intellectual capacity. And if you don't have those things, then again, you might not be seen in the best possible light or you might not get funded at all. So there's kind of those natural biases and putting folks into frameworks that are not very conducive when you're a diverse founder, you know, for you to get capital and because you might not fit into many of those. Do you think that that's starting to change at all or do you feel it's it's staying that way? I think that, you know, there are many folks in the industry that are trying to have are trying to make a conscious effort of changing that and being aware of those biases, both conscious and unconscious, if I may say. But the challenge is the nature of the business, I think, makes it difficult because when you think about it, a lot of early stage VCs, when you move outside, especially of the of the big brands that have very large teams, right? A lot of emerging managers have very small teams, right? It might be them and a, and a partner. Maybe they have one analyst. So it doesn't give you, you don't have a lot of data for those companies, for those entrepreneurs. You don't have a lot of time or resources to really do a big, you know, analysis of, of, of the company. So you have to use some, some kind of framework or shortcut to identify or to determine if this is a good entrepreneur or not. And for the very good companies, that time is compressed because it can be very competitive, right? And so it is not trivial to change that, I think. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time to change that. And that is just one of the pieces of the puzzle, I think, in which, you know, where the challenge is. If I think it's, there are a lot of elements in that entrepreneur supply chain, if you will, that, that are part of the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we recently, the Silicon Valley bank challenges that they saw. It's obviously top of mind in our in our industry and just overall macroeconomics and feeling as though, you know, there's a downturn, whether it becomes steep or not. I don't think anyone really knows for sure. But how do you think diverse founders will will actually thrive during this time? I think there's a, a great opportunity in a sense to leverage a lot of those things that diverse founders have had to develop, kind of a lot of those tools or traits. And there are obviously exceptions, right? But if as a diverse founder, you've had a hard time finding capital, similar to my experience in my first company, you might have to get better at managing your company to profitability, have to get better and more resourceful about how you manage your costs and those underlying unit economics, or maybe even getting to profitability. So when things get tough and access to some type of capital gets tougher, you might be in a position in which You've already, if you will, developed a lot of those good practices in your company, those good traits. Maybe you have better costs. Maybe you improve your gross margins across that process and you're overall maybe more efficient. So you might be in a better position to withstand a bad macroeconomic situation and in that perspective, be able to take advantage of, of some opportunities when maybe some of your competitors are struggling or, or there are no other ventures that are kind of coming on board to fit a, a market void. So obviously you fund a lot of software companies and payments are important part of, of software companies. In fact, obviously there's a, a trend of embedding payments and, and other financial products into software companies. So when you look at the broader diversity and inclusion initiatives that these companies have underway, do you feel like, do you feel like we're making progress in the industry or 
do you feel like there's just a a super long way to go? And and then what do you see as differences between sort of the payments industry and where we are and where software is? Are they pretty similar when it comes to diversity and inclusion? What are your thoughts there? We have a unique view, which is I mean, generally the the companies that that we work with are you know the earliest stages of of development, so they don't have a large workforce in many cases, right? Uh, a lot of the companies might have 10, 20, 30 employees, right? And so from that perspective, when you think about the entrepreneur and what they're trying to do, a lot of them might definitely believe on the tenets of, of having a diverse workforce, having a diverse customer base, but at some level also they're just trying to get their companies off the ground and survive right at that stage. So so it's the balance of what you can do versus what you might want to do long term. It doesn't mean that you should give up on your ambitions on, on or on the vision that you have for your company and your and your workforce and, and customers. But that might be a little bit slower process because you don't have maybe a dedicated HR person, for example, or in some cases you might not have access to to all the candidates that you might want because you don't have a, a dedicated recruiter or the time to maybe recruit in the places that you would ideally like or that you could. So now again, that doesn't mean that you don't do anything, but because of that, I think there's a little bit of a kind of slower process. But given that, we we see many companies that really have a diverse workforce and customer base. One of the things in particular that you know is exciting for us to see is because we take a little bit more of a data-driven approach and we don't really know to an extent a lot of uh, about our, uh, let's say, about the gender of our customers or their ethnicity or anything as they apply to our platform. All we see is, yeah, to a great extent, the numbers of the performance of the company. We find that we are able to provide capital to a much larger percentage of diverse entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, in the latest figures that we checked, I think 47% of our CEOs that we provided capital were either women or minorities. And, uh, when you compare that to the traditional VC equity numbers, which normally, depending where you look, you know, it'll be somewhere around the two percent or less in many cases, then that is a you know that's a big difference kind of from the approach. And so, so we see entrepreneurs that are taking innovative approaches to do those things that they know are the are the right things to do, and also you know good ultimately for their companies. Mm-hmm. Do you think? I mean, it, it sounds logical, but I think. You have the the kind of real real world experience to answer this, but do you feel like a, a diverse leader or diverse CEO or founder typically will create a diverse team? Just having that diversity in their DNA is that does that typically start? Do you see that starting at the you know those companies, and then it it kind of becomes part of the company, part of the company's DNA, and grows from there? Do you do you see that happening a lot? I don't think it's necessarily a given, but it's definitely a piece of the puzzle, right? And so, yeah, diverse entrepreneurs, they, you know, might have already networks of other professionals or other folks that they can bring into the fold into their company, right? They might have gone to colleges in which they might have connections with folks that might help them recruit the right folks or might be part of organizations and networks in which they have those networks that just by the by those connections might help them get a, a diverse set of candidates. In addition to that, you know, there are folks that are very passionate about that and they will definitely, you know, put the extra effort 
do build a very diverse workforce, a little bit kind of against the odds, if you will. So, so I think it definitely helps. I don't think it's necessarily a, a guarantee just because, you know, you have a diverse founder or founders that, that your workforce will be that way, but it's an important ingredient. Sure, sure. Well, what advice would you give other founders and leaders around the topic of diversity and inclusion? I think it's a, you know, it's a challenging problem to solve. And I think it takes, in my experience, just a lot of energy and focused effort. So things won't get solved by themselves. And so it really takes, as you were saying, the opportunity as a leader in a company to make that part of your culture. Uh, let everybody else know that it is important. And, uh, and we know that again, from different studies and, and, and even some of the data that we have, that having a diverse workforce, diverse leadership will produce better business results. And so yeah, I think it's that awareness, but also with that awareness is how do you put that into practice and, and, and just know that it's, you have to put the energy and the effort and the work for things to turn around. That's important. And the other thing that I would say is, as we were talking earlier, that it's really recognizing that is a complex supply chain in the sense, at least again, in the, in the software world, right? In the technology world, if we don't have, if we don't do a good job at the high school level in the K-12 education world around training folks and making folks passionate about STEM, right? And getting folks that want to go to engineering schools, that want to go to, you know, biopharma type of careers, uh, then we will not have the engineers, we will not have the PhDs that a lot of the technology companies and companies that are involved in the innovation process need in their, in their teams. And so if you don't have the, the right candidates even to come up to the door, it becomes really hard or you don't have the right amount of candidates that you need in the door to build your teams. It becomes really difficult. So, so it's about, I think all those different data points of the supply chain, starting with education and also looking at the other side, which is the, the VC world, when you think about it, starting a VC firm is not trivial. You are also dependent on finding LPs and investors. And so if you don't find, if LPs don't fund and give a chance to those emerging managers that are diverse, that might not have maybe some of the experience or background that ideally they are looking to, to fund, then you won't have VCs that are diverse that then are maybe more willing to do the effort to fund diverse entrepreneurs. So, so you really have to look at all the, all the pieces of that, of that supply chain. Yeah, that's interesting. A couple of perspectives there that we haven't really talked about in prior episodes is what you mentioned as far as sort of the, the supply chain, if you will, or the, the supply line of people through the education system. And, and that's obviously something that I think people have focused on and worked on. And then the other side, when you, you think about the funding, it's kind of like there are challenges. Everywhere you look, there's a challenge around it, right? So I think, and I love the way you talk about the pieces, right? There are so many pieces that have to be put together to make it happen and to, to have a diverse workforce. And I think as companies get larger, I don't know that it's necessarily easier, but I think maybe to your point, you're always in a small company, heads down, working real hard. And where's the budget? Where's the time spent? Do you have it to think about and work on diversity and inclusion? And I think that's always a challenge for smaller companies. Definitely, right? And so so given that, right, there's no silver bullet. It doesn't mean, again, that you just kind of throw up your hands in there and say, okay, I'm not going to do anything about it. I think it's just 
recognizing the complexity of the challenge. And also, as you mentioned, I think we have a lot of empathy for early stage entrepreneurs because you know that they're spinning templates, trying to keep templates spinning at the same time. And uh, that is one more thing that they're having to try to manage. And so it's just uh, not all going to work at the same time. And so being as supportive as, as we can to those entrepreneurs and recognizing those trade-offs sometimes that they have to make, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. So, Carlos, we've covered a lot of ground about you and the company and obviously diversity and inclusion. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss or leave with the audience before we wrap up? I think that the last thing might be just because it's timely. I think the time that we're at in particular right now, I think even the recent situation by SVB, I think it's going to be interesting to see where the fintech space, payment space, and, and in general, uh, things related to capital in the business world move over the next few weeks and months because SVB was such a, such a critical part of the, of the earliest stage process, right? They serve VCs, they serve founders, they serve LPs. And so as those things evolve and change, I think from one perspective, you know, we feel for a lot of entrepreneurs that are in a very challenging situation right now, trying to figure out payroll and uh, where the runway is going to be if their line of credit disappears. But at the same time, I think like any challenging opportunity, there might be change, there's going to be innovation, and that presents opportunity and hopefully more options for entrepreneurs to be able to to leverage new ways to to build their companies and, and grow their companies. So, so in a way, I think hopefully of a challenging situation, some some good things come out of it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Hopefully there's some lessons learned and, and some great things do come out of it. Well, what would be the best way for people in the audience who are listening to get a hold of you or at least learn more about Novell Capital? Uh, yeah, definitely visit our website, novelcapital.com. Feel free to connect with me via LinkedIn, Carlos Antequera on LinkedIn, or connect with us via, via our website. Be happy to chat and, and share more about our products, see if there's a way we can help you now or, or in the future, but we just want to be one one more option for entrepreneurs and give those entrepreneurs another tool in their journey of building their companies. Okay. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for being here and being on the show today. I really appreciate all your insights on this important topic. So thanks again for your time today. Thank you for having me and uh, would love to help your audience any way I can. Awesome. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 